Thank you, worship team. Please take your Bibles this morning as we turn to Matthew's Gospel. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, and we'll find our place in God's Word. Turning again to Matthew chapter 12, particularly focusing our attention to verse 43. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 43. The title of our message this morning is Reformation Without Regeneration. Reformation Without Regeneration. So let's find our place in God's Word, beginning there in verse 43. A most unusual text before us this morning as Jesus gives us insight, as this is a major hinge in the Gospel of Matthew, a call to repentance, as we saw last week. Jesus moves into verse 43 by giving us background descriptions of what takes place in the spiritual realm in the lives of some, not all, but in the lives of some who are religious, but of course lost. They are inhabited by unclean spirits. So verse 43 says, When an unclean spirit, Jesus says, goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest, and he finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits that are more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there, so that the last state of that man is worse than the first. So shall it also be with this wicked generation. Then verse 46, while he was still talking and speaking to the multitudes, Behold, his mother and brothers stood outside seeking to speak with him. Then one said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. And he answered and said to one who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand toward his disciples and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister, and my mother. This is the word of God. Cancer that is ignored does not disappear or go away, at least by the law of averages, unless God miraculously touches, of course. When a cancer is noticed and diagnosed within the body of a person, there is great sickness that is affecting them, that is spreading, and left unattended to can easily turn to a life-threatening situation. But the bottom line is cancer ignored, untreated, does not simply go away. Drastic action is needed. A Band-Aid will not suffice. Uh, Numbness medication will not suffice. A Tylenol will not suffice. Lesser means than what is required, we call it radiation to some degree, direct surgery to remove it if that is pertinent, you get the analogy. Spiritually, what we find in this text is that the Pharisees are moral, they are religious, but inside they are dead in the sense of there are dead bones within. And unless there is spirit-wrought regeneration by the Spirit of God, there is no hope for them, regardless of what they look like, regardless of their outer exterior, regardless of their religion or their religiosity, or you could say it like this, 
regardless of their good works, their good deeds, regardless of busyness for the kingdom, quote unquote, regardless of how much they read God's word, regardless of all the activity that is good, but does not replace a new heart by the spirit of God in Christ, it is hopeless. We saw last week that their message from Christ was to repent. They come to Jesus desiring a heavenly sign, and Jesus points to the sign of Jonah, which is the sign of his resurrection. Jesus tells them that he is the true and better temple. He is the true and better Jonah. He is the true and better king. And so the message from Jesus is repent. Repent in the same way that the men of Jonah repented when confronted with the message of their wickedness. That God is holy, that he reigns, and he will judge. They were awakened to their need of a savior. And they turned and repented of their sins. And Jesus says, in the same way, you must repent as well. This is the theme of our passage. And Jesus illustrates this theme of the need for genuine, spirit-led, spirit-wrought repentance in a contrast with what we would call external reformation. And he does it with the most unusual story. You know, we've often found, found ourselves recently, the last couple of weeks, of saying, this isn't a text that you would just pick out of the blue uh, to preach on an average Sunday morning, because we think like we think. We think in human terms. We think we need more self-help. We need more self-focus. We need more whatever. But as we come into God's Word, we find this is the message for the hour and how pertinent it is. Our text is an unusual one. In fact, it is beyond human, what we'd say is natural understanding. We need spirit enlightenment to understand what is being said. In fact, sometimes when you come to a text and you read too many commentaries, you leave more confused than when you started. And you just come back to God's word and say, God, give light, give leading, give insight. I don't think anybody has a mastery on this text particularly. So you find yourself coming back to that which is good and comparing scripture with scripture and saying, Lord, lead me into the truth. Your way uh, is truth. Here we see that the Lord Jesus Christ teaches us about the demonic realm or the spirit realm. We've seen some instances already in his life and ministry that, that's given us insight, but truly this text this morning is very uh, unusual. So two key points we'll frame our thoughts around this morning is, number one, the useless reformation of religion. The useless reformation of religion. And if that catches your ear uniquely, maybe you want to add external religion. We could put it like that. The useless reformation of simply an external religion or just religion as a whole. And then secondly, the ultimate reality of relationship. The ultimate reality of a genuine relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because that is what is at the heart of our text here today in verses 43 all, or 45 down through verse 50. So point number one, the useless reformation of religion. Notice the description that Jesus then turns to and gives to us. This unusual text is taught to us by the Lord Jesus Christ. And he gives a description of a man who is possessed of a demon or, or a, a, a spirit, an unclean spirit most specifically. As Jesus gives this description, notice that this is a fact that he describes effortless, effortlessly. 
he turns and immediately begins to talk about the spirit realm, the third realm, with no stuttering, no stammering. It's just as real as he is real, as they are real, as he is speaking to them. There is another reality that they maybe not cannot see with their own physical eyes, but it's just as real as anything that they can imagine or experience or see. And the fact that Jesus does this reveals that Jesus is Lord of all. More specifically, he's the Lord of unclean spirits. He is the Lord of demons, as we have seen previously as a title to one of our messages, where he is casting out demons out of a demon-possessed man. We entitled that Lord of Demons. He is the Lord of all. He exercises all power and all authority. So we've seen this demonstrated in Matthew's gospel previously. In fact, we've seen where he encountered a demon-possessed man who was rebelling against God. Ultimately, this man had complete control and power over his affairs. No one could stop him. No one could restrain him. And yet, when this man or the uh, maniac of Gadara sees Jesus, there's multiple ones in Luke's account, they recognize that this is Lord. Uh, this is the one who formed angels. This is the one who was present at their rebellion. This is the one who has assigned them to their current realm. This is the one who has control over them at any time. This is the one who has control over their activities. And here is the one who has control over their eternal destiny. Here, Jesus shows us, but yet they know, here is the one who knows how they operate. Here is the one who knows their patterns and their habits. He knows their desires. In fact, Matthew 8, verse 28, reminds us that not only does Jesus know about them, they know about him. We see there that in that passage, verse 29, they suddenly cried out to Jesus saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus, thou Son of God? Have you come to torment us before the time? So these demons, or this unclean spirit that Jesus describes, are very aware of who Jesus is. And you say, LeGrand, you're emphasizing that. Well, exactly, because many there that day do not understand who Jesus is. And yet, the unclean spirits of the spirit realm, the demon-possessed, know who Jesus is. They're aware that he is the Son of God. They are aware that he will judge them at some point. In fact, they say, are you here to judge us before the time? So we don't know when that time is. They don't know when that time is. No man knows when that time is. But one thing they do know is that it doesn't seem time yet. We thought we had more time to do what we're doing. Are you, is it now? And so that is a passage that we've looked at. Mark uh, chapter 1, verse 23 gives another one. Notice here, listen to the word of the Lord that gives insight. Now, there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit. Again, same word that's used to describe what Jesus is using in our text. And he cried out saying, let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? Now, notice here, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Mark's gospel records for us a different passage that gives so much insight into Jesus' relationship with the demonic realm, but more importantly, their understanding of him. In these interactions, they are giving confessions of faith that are more important in some sense than anybody in the moment has power to understand or insight to understand. But we, as the people of God, with a full canon of Scripture, we look back and we see what these statements are ultimately testifying to. 
as we just heard sung about just a moment ago, the Holy One, the Holy God, they said this, we know that you, Matthew 1, you are the Holy One of God. Now this all stands in stark contrast to the fact, if you remember within our context, context of Matthew's Gospel, the Pharisees are so blind of Jesus' ministry and the nature of who He is, that they are accusing His works of being that which is of Beelzebub, or that which is of Satan. Luke chapter 4, verse 41 gives a, one other portrait that gives a testimony. The demons also came out of many, crying out and saying, You are the Christ, the Son of God. So it can't be both ways. As the Pharisees judge and assess Jesus' ministry, they can't stand and say, Well, this is the work of Satan, when the work of Satan is saying, This is the Holy One of God. And Jesus says, A house divided against itself cannot stand. So what we find here is that there is a religious audience that is hearing the message of Christ, witnessing the miracles of Christ, and yet their heart is hardening, and they're saying, we reject him. We reject this. This is of the devil, or this is of Satan. So what are we to do with all this? Well, Jesus helps us. Here in our text, which is the most unusual text, he gives insight in maybe explaining why the response is what it is. And so he gives us some insight if we are to understand. We need to establish a couple things. And this is what it is. Number one, not just by way of introduction, not every unsaved person that you encounter is demon-possessed. Obvious statement, okay? But not every person that you encounter is demon-possessed. Second point we need to establish is this. It is possible for someone to be demon-possessed, and yet that demon depart or unclean spirit depart of its own accord. Oftentimes, when we think about an unclean spirit inhabiting a person, we know that demons, according to what Scripture teaches, must have a host, must inhabit a host. We often think of it in the terms of an exorcism, where someone is calling that demon to come out. But in this text, Jesus gives insight into the fact that the unclean spirit leaves of his own accord. Most unusual. When we talk about this type of spiritual warfare, we don't necessarily think in the terms of the spirits come and go of their own accord. We think of it as they come and indwell, inhabit, destroy, an uh, image bearer of God. And yet the only way they'll leave is if someone with the power of the spirit, the authority of God, commands them to leave. But here we find that this unclean spirit not only leaves, but he also then comes back. And not only does he come back, but he brings seven of his, of his friends. What a scary thought. So a couple of things that we can track from this or can deduct from this passage is this. There is spiritual warfare all around. If you are without Christ, if, if someone is without Christ, without the Holy Spirit of God indwelling them, they are subject to possibly being dwelled by an unclean spirit. That's a whole other lesson, a whole other conversation, a whole other message that time does not allow us to, to get into that. And quite frankly, I have no delight in wanting to do that. And I'll leave most of that for one-on-one -on -one conversation. But the reality is, it can happen. Well, then people ask, can a child of God be demon-possessed? And according to the clear teaching of Scripture, the answer to that is no. Where the Spirit of God is, there is liberty. Where the Holy Spirit of God is, there is life. 
There is newness of life. There's a new heart, a new mind. We could do a word study on walking, in the, just simply the word new, in newness of life or new creation. We're born again by the Spirit of God. John says in his epistle, greater is he who's in you than he who is in the world. And part of that understanding is the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. So a key distinction that we do need to make, though, is that Christians can be harassed externally by the demonic realm. We can be oppressed, for lack of better words, but externally. So, so just very quickly, I want to move quickly, but to help us understand the context and an understanding of application, whether saved or unsaved, there is the possibility the unsaved man can be afflicted by demonic spirits, unclean spirits, internally and externally. It's a possibility. The born-again believer, the child of God in Christ, can only be affected externally, circumstantially, oppression from without, and I would also add at God's permissive will, at God's command. Time does not allow us to go into the full studies of that, but that is the clear teaching of Scripture. We are the bride of Christ. We are His peculiar people. And when you understand that and study that through, nothing happens to the child of God, the bride of Christ, apart from the permissive will of God. Again, another study spokes off the wheel. We want to stay focused and on track here this morning. So a believer can only know the external aspect of an unclean spirit or demonic harassment. Harassment. 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul says this, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God, notice here, dwells in you? Where the Spirit of God is, there is no other spirit. The Spirit of God and demons do not share or inhabit the same dwelling. God will not share His glory with another. So another key to understanding this text as we come here as, as well, something else we want to establish, is the understanding of that. But also, not all that the Lord healed in His healing ministry, particularly those who were demon-possessed, not all of them were also spiritually born again. Many were those that Jesus gave a physical healing to or a physical uh, miracle to, but yet spiritually doesn't mean or equate the fact that they became a disciple of Christ. It does not equate that all of them were necessarily born again. I'll give you an example, the feeding of the 5,000. Many were recipients of the blessings of Christ, the miracle of Christ, but that is not to say all those who left full that day were also spiritually born again because of that miracle that Christ performed, maybe just to give an example there. So not all of Jesus' miracles were salvific or saving of the soul. So here Jesus gives us insight that there is a man who is controlled by an unclean spirit. Notice there with me verse 43. There is a departure. When the unclean spirit goes out of a man of his own accord, he then goes through dry places, seeking rest, finding none. I cannot tell you how dense those three phrases are right there in verse 43. He goes, first off, through dry places, secondly, seeking rest, thirdly, finding nothing. Just a word here about verse 43, this unclean spirit. According to the clear teaching of Scripture, there is a category of beings simply known as angels. God created angels. There was God and nothing else in before time, before creation. God created the category of beings known as angels. 
And according to Isaiah and Ezekiel and other passages, we understand that within that realm, there was a host led by Satan himself, known as Lucifer, who rebelled against God. And those rebellious angels were cast out of heaven, and they're known as now demons, who is reserved, as we've seen through our study through Jude, the darkness forever. Uh, there is no hope for them to be redeemed. Now, notice how many people who struggle with the sovereignty of electing grace of God have no concern, usually, or empathy for these fallen angels. It's just an interesting aside. But there is no hope for them. They rebelled against God, and their future is certain and sure. So when Jesus invokes here in this teaching to the audience that day, us by extension, what is an unclean spirit? It is a demon. What is a demon? A demon is a fallen angel who rebelled against God, and there is no hope for him. One thing we need to take note of here as well is that not all demons, like angels, are the same. They are unique. They have their own personalities. They have their own individual uh, personality and individuality. For example, turn with me just briefly to Mark chapter 9 and verse 17, which will give insight to our text here as well. Mark chapter 9 and verse 17. Mark chapter 9 verse 17 Mark writes this, he says, Then one of the crowd answered and said uh, to him, Teacher, you brought my son who has a mute spirit. Now notice here, and wherever it seizes it, him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, he gnashes his teeth, he becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out. But they could not. Now notice that phrase, they could not. They were not powerful enough, there was not a spiritual ability to. So he answered him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me, Jesus says. Verse 20, so then they brought him to him. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him. And he fell down to the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? Now notice here, he said, from childhood. Just enter into the suffering of these parents as their little boy has been suffering under the torment of this unclean spirit. How long has this been happening to him? From childhood. And he often has been thrown down into the fire and into the water to be destroyed. But Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, notice here, one of the most beautiful phrases in all of Scripture, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Now when Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter no more. Enter, no, now notice the phrase, and enter him no more. Direct command of the Lord, this man will not be inhabited by demonic or unclean spirits at the command of Christ. Verse 26, Then the Spirit cried out and convulsed him greatly and came out of him, and he became as one dead, so that many said, Well, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And Jesus said to them, This kind comes out by nothing but by prayer and fasting. So much here in this cross-reference, but the key takeaway I want us to give, same title used, unclean spirit. Uh, this particular spirit is a unique spirit, not like other ones, because Jesus says, this kind comes only but by prayer and fasting. Wait a second, 
God is sovereign. He absolutely is. Yet God has ordained fasting and prayer for what? For us to seek his face. Here, Jesus points to the means is just as important as the deliverance by saying this kind, demonic possession, only comes, about, uh, comes out by prayer and fasting. Let's go back to our text here in Matthew chapter 12. I want to say thank you for following with me as I'm trying to walk through this and, and ask the Lord to give us insight. Going back to chapter 12, notice how this spirit is defined by needing rest. Don't let that be lost on us this morning. Needing, seeking, seeking rest. Verse 43, he goes through the dry places. Commentators say this is the, the Negev aspect, a region of the desert. Regardless, whatever it is that he is looking for, he's not finding it. That is the condition not only of, notice here, fallen man, but what Jesus is telling us here, this is the condition of the demonic realm. Looking for seeking for that which they will not find. Now, we often don't enter into this, do we? I don't ever give thought and consideration about the aspect or the spiritual rhythms and habits of the demonic realm, and I think that's okay. I don't think we need to beat ourselves up too bad about that. But it is insightful. As we come face-to-face with the text this morning, Jesus says this unclean spirit leaves the one with whom he inhabits, but he's looking for something. He's looking for rest. Does he find it? Absolutely not. He finds, he finds none. You no know, natural law describes for us that nature abhors a vacuum. And that is exactly what we find here. Not only are demons restless, of course, but humans are as well. Proverbs tells us that the eyes of man that God created, but in its fallen condition, the eyes of man, or a metaphor for the heart of man, are constantly looking but are never satisfied in the same way that the fires of Hades are never satiated. What does that tell us, friends? Not only in the spiritual realm, but in the physical realm, our hearts are restless, as Augustine says, until we find our rest in our Creator God. If you're looking for fulfillment and rest in any type of created good gift of God, in money, in pleasure, maybe in your work, vacations, Here, the context is finding rest in religion. And Jesus says, if this is your aim, if this is your pursuit, you will never find it outside of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Seeking rest, never finding it. Here, his audience is the religious leaders seeking fulfillment, seeking rest, in the same way that this unclean spirit went out seeking rest. It will never find it. They will never find it apart from Christ. Here's a thought for us to consider this morning. Unclean spirits or demons are ultimately the most restless of all because they've been given more light and more insight than we'll ever experience. They've seen things we've never seen. They've been exposed to things that we've never been exposed to. That Isaiah chapter 6 passage that we described, we take by faith. They've seen in their essence. That's why there's no forgiveness for them. Scripture very clearly teaches that that, that there's a direct correlation to a hardening of heart, a judicial hardness in relation to the light that is given to man. And the more that a man hardens his heart against the light of God's word and his truth, there comes a point in that opportunity for salvation 
in unbelief where the Spirit of God says, my spirit will not always strive with man. Genesis chapter 6. Here what we see is this unclean spirit has no hope for change, no hope for salvation. He is a restless spirit. He is simply going around from host to host, even to the point of going into the dry places of the Negev, the dry places of the desert, looking for rest, never finding it. They know nothing of the grace of God. In fact, all they do, unclean spirits, demonic spirits, all they do is destroy. Absolutely destroy. Here, when it inhabits its host, he's destroying an image bearer of God. In the same way we saw in Mark's account, this young man, this boy is being thrown into life-threatening situations. No doubt he was scarred. His image-bearing abilities to represent the beauty of, of God and man and as, man as God's creation is being distorted and morphed in different ways. All a demon can do is destroy what God has made, what God has done. He is, he is restless. Now notice verse 44. The desire of this unclean spirit. What is its aim? Notice now we have a personal conversation, a soliloquy in literature it's called. Here he has a conversation much like the prodigal son has with himself when he comes to rock bottom. You remember Luke 15? Prodigal son pursues wickedness. He pursues iniquity. He rejects the father's presence, the father's love. But he hits rock bottom. He comes to a realization, what am I doing? I am insane. You understand that? And he has a conversation all by himself with the pigs. That's the context. Here, this unclean spirit does something similar. But yet, there is no hope for him. There is no loving father for him to return to. Notice what he says, verse 44. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. Notice the ownership, the possessive language he uses to describe a human being, the host with which he will dwell. I will return to my house, Jesus gives him as saying. Now, when he comes... What does he find? He finds a being, a human being, who was once under the oppression of an unclean spirit. The unclean spirit left, and what did that person do? They reformed. They went through a rehabilitation program. Good things, not mocking it at all. As we know here at our church, we're supporting a local faith-based one here as well. But apart and divorced from the gospel transformation of the work of Christ, all it is is external Reformation. This man might have gone to a, a, a group, a gathering, and after a number of weeks said, I, I'm good to go. I'm a, new, I'm a new Joe. I've cleaned my life up. My house is in order. It's swept, the description's given to us here. It's cleaned up. It's washed up. But here's the problem. It has no power. This is the, the work of the flesh. This host, this unclean spirit sees it. And it represents religion apart from the Spirit of God. It represents activity apart from the Spirit of God. It represents human reform, human effort, human energy, but divorced from the power of God. And this unclean spirit comes and sees that which he saw before. And he comes in and not only takes over, but talking about individual personalities, he brings seven more of a greater sort, of a greater kind with him. You say, LeGrand, why are you emphasizing this? This is the teaching of Jesus. This helps us to understand human form, like religious form that has no power. It has no power of the Holy Spirit. Friends, this describes much of what your world looks like as you live it every day throughout the week. What is wrong with that person? 
they, they, act, they tell me they're a Christian, but why do they act like a non-Christian? This person who is a co-worker of mine or, or this family member of mine, I, I, I think they're a Christian, but they tear me down or they, they hurt my business or whatever. Friends, listen. Just because something looks polished on the outside doesn't mean that the inside is a new creation in Christ. And we'll get to that in our application in just a moment. The only thing we have is the fruit of the Spirit that is born and birthed in and through us. And much of your world will make sense as you realize you don't know who's filled with an unclean spirit and who isn't. My point is not to try to scare anybody here this morning, but Jesus gives commentary and insight speaking about the most polished people of the day, the Sunday morning crowd. Fortunately, guys, he's talking about people who are in the right place at the right time. This is the audience that he's talking to. And he says, yet many of you are, un, are filled with an unclean spirit. And this is what it is like. So it gives commentary, it gives clarity into maybe many of the struggles that we struggle with and deal with in our different corners where God has placed us as missionaries, as disciples, as representatives of him. So as we look at this text, what we find here is that the spirit may have temporarily left, but he did not relinquish ownership. Notice his possessive language. This was his, this was his house. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3, Paul gives insight here that helps us as we think about gospel ministry, counseling, sharing the word of God, and wondering why is this so hard? Why is this not easier than what it is? Well, Paul says this, he says, but even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Notice here, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine in them. In other words, the light that should be seen is dampened or darkened or a bushel is, is covering it up. It is unseen. Who does that spiritual blinding work? It is the God of this age. It is, it is Satan himself. But lastly, underneath the point number one, look with me in verse 45 here. We see the full effect, the degradation of these unclean spirits. Verse 45 says, Then he goes and he takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and they dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. So shall it be with this wicked generation. I want to say this in conclusion on this point. We make the wrong assumption. Do not miss this. We make the wrong assumption that demon-possessed people are all writhing in the floor, and we know who they are. And that would be a wrong assumption. Remember, the audience that Jesus is talking to are those who know the Word of God, those who are saying blasphemous things about His work and ministry, but to simply look at the external shell uh, to simply look at certain aspects of the rhythm and life that they have would be to come maybe to a wrong conclusion. This is the useless reformation of external religion. One final point on this. Back in Matthew chapter 6, for those of you who have been here for the, the whole of the study, just remember the sole aspect or the sole extent of this crowd's religion was only that which could be seen was only that which human eyes could verify. So you say, LeGrand, who is this that you're talking about? Give more information on who, who are these possibly that, well, just speaking what Scripture says, if my faith, if your faith, if the practices of our faith, if the sole extent of it is only public, then we should be very concerned. 
that would be hugely indicative of the fact that there is no substance and no reality to the God we say we worship. The holy God we say we know. That's a, you go back to Matthew 6, you can find that, and Jesus gets more specific teaching there. Secondly, point number two, not only the useless reformation of external religion, but secondly, the ultimate reality of relationship. Look with me in verses 46 through 50. Very quickly, we'll walk through this. Jesus gives a description that to be a disciple of him means that he comes first. This is a theme that Jesus comes to again and again. Matthew 6, 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you. We find in Matthew chapter 7 and 8 instances where he gives descriptions of would-be disciples yet they are not truly seeking him. But notice here in verse 46, while he was still talking to the multitudes, behold, outside his mother and his brothers stood, seeking to speak with him. Then one said to him, Jesus, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. So it's as if to say, come on now, this is normal, everyday, human relationship language. We all have a mom, right? You don't keep mama waiting. We all have brothers and sisters. Uh, come on, human relationships. So we get that. We understand the value of family. Jesus is never putting down family. Jesus created the family. Jesus institute, instituted the family. Jesus, in his own work for buying the church with his own blood, models the family. He upholds the high view of the home. But here... He's describing what it means to be a disciple. So to understand ultimately what he's talking about, we go back to that honor-shame culture concept of the Far East. Listen, you would never do anything that would bring any reproach or disrespect upon your mom and dad all the days of your life, even when that cross-grains healthy biblical norms. Do you understand what I mean by that? The Bible says in Genesis that a man, when he gets married, is to leave father and mother to establish a new home, a new thing, to always seek to honor his mother and father all the days of his life, but he is creating a new home, a new thing, that's healthy, normal, and good. But then God is king over that. And when the Lord leads, he leads men. He leads people to pursue him in different ways. He calls people out to do certain things in specific ways. And there comes a point in all relationships where we're comfortable, we're normal, we love having our brood together, we love to get together with our family, our brothers, our sisters, our daughters, our sons. But there's times where when we're following Jesus as a disciple, a choice has to be made. Now, we don't like to hear this. This is not popular, and I get that. But it's true and it's real. Jesus tells us about it. And what Jesus says is above all relationships, there must be one that is preeminent. And here he begins to describe true, genuine discipleship. What is it? We'll get to that in just a moment. But as is consistent with what Jesus has been teaching through Matthew's gospel, you don't have to turn there, but going back to Matthew chapter 7, verse 18, we remember that there were two would-be disciples that came to him, and the whole takeaway was simply this. They had a form of a desire, but it wasn't truly real. They said, Lord, we desire to follow you, but yet they really didn't. It was on their terms. Jesus wasn't Lord of all in their life. He was just words on their tongue, and Jesus turns them away. He says, you're not worthy to follow me. You're, you're not worthy to follow me if you're going to wait till your mom and dad pass away. And you're going to get the inheritance, financial security. Once you get all of that figured out, then you're going to follow me. No, you're not worthy to be my disciple. Either you follow me now and trust me, without faith it is impossible to please God. 
Either you follow me at my word, or you're not worthy to follow me at all. This is what we call the hard sayings of Jesus. Even as I'm giving it to you, I'm looking at faces that are like, man, this is blunt, this is the reality. But it's not my words, it's Jesus' words. This is what it means to follow Christ. Jesus himself not only teaches this, but what we find in our text is that Jesus is the example of this. Jesus is modeling this for us. Don't miss this. He's not only teaching it, but there's a crowd right in the middle of this pivotal moment of his teaching saying, hey, mama's over here. Now, we all love mom. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to put down mom, but mom isn't Lord. There's only one Lord. And Jesus, you just got to imagine, sometimes you're in the middle of something, you're teaching, you're preaching, and then somebody's like tugging on your coat, and they're interrupting you about something that's over here. What Jesus is saying, with all due respect, my mother, my brothers, and my sisters are those who I have a relationship with. What he means here is my disciples are the family of God, are those that are by faith, those who come to me by faith. This is who I have a relationship with. You say, well, what an unusual distinction. No, not at all. While Mary herself understood who Jesus was, she, she struggled at times. Divorcing and separating the fact of a motherly, paternal care, excuse me, a motherly care, not paternal, but a motherly care of Jesus, but yet often reminding herself, he's simply on loan to me. This is, this is God's. It's so balancing that dynamic, which I cannot imagine. But the Bible clearly teaches that Jesus' brothers and sisters were not immediate disciples. He had disciples, but his brothers and the two sisters that we know of, we know that he had four brothers and two sisters, at least two. We've, in our study of Jude, we looked at that at the beginning of Jude's epistle. James' epistle, they designate themselves and who they are. We've looked at their relationship. But they were not immediate disciples. But we know this by the teaching of the early church, Acts chapter 1 through 3. The Bible, the Holy Spirit records that his, his family was there with the apostles. So there's been a change. There's been a moment in their relationship where they don't see Jesus as their brother. They see Jesus as their Savior. But here is not that moment. Here, this is simply physical flesh and blood at the door interrupting Jesus. And so he uses this as a very real example for those who are present there that day. He makes very clear that his family, the family of God, this is a foremost relationship above every other relationship. So I'll be there in five minutes, but this is, I'm going to finish this. That's, that's what he's saying. This is my family. You know, as I looked around and was preparing this message, I was just thinking, how many of you, this is your story. The family of God truly is your family. Oh, yes, you've got flesh and blood family, no doubt, but they're in far places, or they're not believers. And so you find yourself not only loving them, they're your flesh and blood, no doubt, but your brothers and sisters in Christ, you're closer to than your own flesh and blood because of this reality that Jesus is talking about right here. And I was praying over you, and I was rejoicing over many of you, and I was saying, oh, I know, have had to walk through this and make this difficult decision. And then others of you, by the grace of God, you've not known this. Both your family in the flesh is also your family in faith in Christ. And what a joy that is. Both those things are harmonized. But let's be clear this morning, what Jesus is pointing to is not useless reformation of activity, of simply I'm saved or I'm a disciple because of what I do for Jesus and I do this because I have to and simply looking for applause and praise and, and human affirmation. But no, Jesus points to the fact that his disciples are those who have a relationship with him by faith. Verse 49, he describes more of this relationship. He says, and he stretched out his hand toward his disciples and said, here 
are my mother and my brothers. By faith is the understanding of this text. And then lastly, he gives the definition, verse 50, of what this looks like. He says, For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. So as we, as we conclude this morning, take your Bibles and go back with me to Matthew chapter 7 for our final cross-reference that we will look at as we consider Jesus' words. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, my sister, and my mother. What is Jesus talking about? He's not just talking about activity, although it includes activity. He's talking about something that begins with relationship. A relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ, and His finished atoning work of the gospel. In fact, one doctrine that we could point to that Jesus is hinting at here is that of double imputation. The substitutionary death of Christ, moral reformation, trying harder, doing more, volunteering at the library or the bread pantry or whatever, the humane society, all good things, but none of those things contribute to a right standing with God. Many people, if you talk to them about, do you know Jesus? Are you a Christian? Are you a disciple of Christ? Sure, sure, yes, absolutely. And as you hear them talk, they're banking everything on what they do, but not on what Christ has done. One of our brothers just hit me in the head right now. One of our brothers in men's breakfast Friday. Dave, you were talking about this. He had a close relationship with a very dear friend who was a professional in his life, but he was more than a professional in his life. They would go do things together like hunting and fishing. And they begin to ride down the road, and the Lord led Dave to just begin articulating the need to know Christ, to be saved. And his friend was offended. All right, so they have established a friendship, but they start talking about sin, start talking about those kinds of things. His friend was offended at Dave. He said, what are you, like, what are you talking about? I'm not those things. Like, I'm a good person. Don't include me in with that crowd. That's what we call moral righteousness of the human flesh that damns just as much as the most wicked things you could come up with in your mind. Our righteousness is as a filthy rag before a holy God. When the unclean spirit left this man, what did he do? He cleaned himself up. But before the presence of God, he's still a sinner in need of God's righteousness. When we think about W imputation, when we come by faith to Christ, Christ gives us his righteousness. Maybe to use a banking term, he transfers his righteousness to us. Our account has only a negative balance. You think about the national debt, that's crushing. We're spending money like money doesn't exist as a country. But imagine that national debt was your bank balance. Negative, what is it, 35 trillion? I mean, what is that? What is that? Do we even know what 35 trillion is? Is that a number? Really? But that's our national debt. But imagine that's your debt. Friend, you could live a million lifetimes and never pay that back. You could, get, you could take the highest salary of the, the most highest income person on earth and live forever. You would not be able to pay that back. It's just insurmountable. And when we think about a transfer, though, 
That's our sin. That's our wickedness. That is our works of the flesh. We must be saved. So when we look to Christ and say, Christ, save me, we come to Jesus and rest in him. As we have seen in Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Notice here, and I will give you rest. That's what that unclean spirit's looking for and cannot find it. And that's what the lost are looking for and cannot find it. But Jesus gives it to those who will come to him. He takes his righteousness and transfers it, an accounting term, to our account. And when we look to him by faith, he takes our sin debt upon the cross. It was placed upon him and his shoulders. Only God could take our sin debt and cancel it out. Only God could take it and be right with God. Only a holy God can save us for himself, by himself, from himself. But in that account, it's not simply a zero balance. Reformation. No, no, no. We need Christ's righteousness placed in there. And that is something that only Christ can give. And he gives it by grace, through faith, to all who will look to him and rest in him. Not by works, Ephesians 2, 8, not by works of righteousness, which I have done or that you have done, but by his grace, he saves his children. So what we find here in conclusions, Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied, preached in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? Then I will declare to them, now notice here, Depart from me, I never knew you. I never knew you, depart from me, who practice lawlessness. If you don't walk through this verse carefully, you will be super confused. Wait a second. I thought Jesus said, my disciples are those who obey me, who do my will. Yes, but it's those who have a relationship with him. You can say it like this. It's those who serve God because they love God. They serve God because of what? Christ has done for them. And all that they do is not earning, is not, notice here, I have to, but I get to. Don't miss that. The genuine disciple, the genuine Christian says, I want to serve God today because of what Christ has done for me, and I love him, and all the days of my life I will serve him. If he chooses to never give me one evidence of blessing again, that's okay. He saved my soul. He gives me every spiritual blessing that is in Christ Jesus. In the heavenly places, it's as if I'm there now. And one day, I will be in the presence of God, my Savior. He's enough. His presence is enough. So what I do for him is because I love him. But notice those who stand before the Lord. He says, not everyone who says, says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter to the kingdom of heaven, but he does the will of my Father who is in heaven. There's a group of people who when he says, verse 22, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, notice how everything they point to as an evidence that they are a disciple, don't miss this, is something that is external. It's something that can be seen with the eyes of flesh. The problem is, is nothing is done in faith. The problem is, is the only time they pray is before men. The problem is the only time they give is before men. The problem is the only time they do any ministry, religious activity, don't miss this, is before men. 
And that's why Jesus says you've got your reward because you did it for a minute. You have it. But we don't have a relationship. So if you understand what Jesus is saying, they're taking the things of Christ, religious things, and using them for their own glory, their own gain. They're standing on top of it. And Jesus is the, by, he's just watching. It's not being done for him. It's not being done for God, by his grace, by his spirit. It's being done for them. And part of what this self-deception is, is they see no need for Christ. I'm a preacher. I prophesy. I'm a Sunday school teacher. Uh, We go to church every Sunday. That's why we're saved. Who needs Jesus, ultimately? In fact, I get tired of it, so I just think I'm going to quit for a while, or I'm just not going to do this, or I'm just not going to do that. Or their whole reason for why they're doing it is just completely off. Or, you know what, they walk away from the faith. Or whatever, all kinds of excuses or reasons or whatever. Friend, as we examine our hearts, how do we understand whether our religion, our faith, is useless external reformation or whether it is a real relationship. Well, may God, by his spirit, examine our hearts, show us and confirm those of us that we know him. And if we are lost, may God, by his grace, open up the hearts of the lost here today in this church, those that you know, to see that they're resting in a form of godliness that has no power whatsoever. And so the message here is to turn, repent, and to look to Christ. In fact, that's what Jesus said. The men of Nineveh repented. You must repent. Friend, have you repented of your sins and turned to Christ by faith? Will you repent? Come to Jesus and rest in him. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we love you for your word, and we love you for the searching, probing message of Christ. Lord, we love you. And we've seen our need for you. True believers are not defensive. True believers are not fighting for any image or upkeep. They know what they are before a holy God. They know what they've been forgiven of. And they're forever running to Christ, praising Christ, trusting in Christ, resting in Christ. Father, thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. As we examine our hearts this morning, we desire to have a real, meaningful relationship with him, to do his command, to follow his word, to obey him, to love him, to reverence him because of what he's done for us. Not in order for any, what anyone thinks, but for God and God alone. Father, this changes everything when we truly understand it. When literally everything is a sacrifice of praise as unto the Lord and not unto men. Father, would you deliver us from man-pleasing? Would you deliver us from pride? Or would you deliver us from spiritual or busy activity divorced from the power of God, the Spirit of God? Or we want everything that we do here at Grace to be authentic, to be real, to bear the fruit of the Spirit, to be led of the Spirit, to be blessed of the Spirit, Father, we trust you to do this work in us. We trust your spirit day by day to renew us in the word of God. Father, we love you. We confess this this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.